And we'll pick up somewhat where we left off uh, about two months ago. We uh, began in John chapter 4, and, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But let me just begin by reading for you what John has written for us here. Verses 19 through 26. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship that you do not know. We worship that we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and, the, and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. The woman said to Him, I know the Messiah is coming. He, will, he who is called Christ, when He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. By way of context and review, uh, one of the things that has impressed me as I have prepared is the unity and the cohesion in this gospel. I'll, I'll be reading something and a, a word on a word level will pop up and I'll, I'll, I'll call Vivian in and I have to share it right then. I said, this is just, this is God's word. This is God speaking to us. 2,000 years after these, or plus or minus after this was written, God is here in our midst today, and he would have us here in this word, not my words, but in this word, his voice, and that we would consider his voice, and that we would respond to his voice in faith and obedience. We looked at chapter 2, and I bring this up because this is kind of where I, say, I see a cohesion. Chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, uh, it says, But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. As we come... This morning, we know the story of Jesus born in the manger, and <clears throat> good sound doctrines teaches that Jesus came in the flesh. He dwelt among us. He was a man after the seed in the lineage of David, but he was also the God-man. He was God incarnate, for the Virgin Mary was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. And so we see something right off the, uh, right in the beginning of one of his characteristics as the God-man, he knew what was, he was omniscient. He saw, as we said months ago, he saw uh, Nathaniel sitting under a fig tree. And of course, then he prophesied in that moment of a day that was greater to come. Again, we have mentioned before in the book of Job, Jesus is going to again and again demonstrate this foreknowledge, the fact that he knew what was in people. Jesus, God, man, was omniscient. He knows what is in us because he knows us. 
He created us. There's not an individual here this morning that was not formed and knit together in your mother's womb by the direct uh, work of God uh, Almighty. <clears throat> Over the last couple of sermons, we've introduced two individuals that demonstrate this. One was Nicodemus. He was identified as a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews, a teacher in Israel. The second is an unnamed woman, simply defined as a Samaritan. <clears throat> the second woman was outside the commonwealth of Israel. And by description of lifestyle, some suggest that she was an, an adulterer, and some even go so far as to say that she may have been a prostitute. You could not have two people that were any further apart to begin a gospel to uh, where God is calling men, as we said we, when we John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his son, that whosoever, whosoever, whether you are a ruler of the Jews, a Pharisee, a righteous man in Israel, a teacher of Israel, or you're a woman living in sin. But they had this one thing in common. They both needed the same work of the Holy Spirit. If you remember with Nicodemus, he was told when he came to Jesus that he must be born again, that he must be born from above. And we have this description of the Holy Spirit as an independent, sovereign wind that blows where it wills. What they needed, uh, and we've said that this is our theme, what they needed we find in John 20. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you might believe, that you might believe, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The verse gives the part of the reason for the signs that you may believe two things, that he is the Christ and he is the Son of God. Jesus indeed is the Christ. Jesus indeed is the Son of God. And all of us, all who would believe on his name, have have, may have eternal life. But as we've said in the past, there is a reason for the eternal life. It's the restoration of the life that was lost in the garden because of the fall of Adam. It's the reason that we might be restored to a right relationship and that we might do and be able to do what we were created to do, that we might glorify God and enjoy Him forever. In other words, pertinent to our meeting this morning, that we might be able to worship Him. In John 3, 9, we say this again. There are several things that Nicodemus knew. He knew something about Jesus. This man came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. But what he didn't know is what he needed. He did not know that he needed the Holy Spirit that had been mentioned in the book of Ezekiel to come in and give him exchange his heart of stone for a heart of flesh. What he needed was a spiritual birth. And again, in John 4.10, Jesus answered her, If you knew, and this was our sermon last time, if you knew the gift of God, and let me stop just to emphasize as I go along, everything we're talking about starts with God, and all that we have is a gift from God. 
We can bring nothing into the equation but our sin and our need for that gift. <clears throat> and he says, if you had known the gift of God and who it was that is saying to you, give him a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So this is exhibit number two, the Samaritan woman. Next to the story of Nicodemus, the story of Jesus' encounter with the woman of the well is probably one of the most famous sermons. So you can project, you'll remember as, you go, as we go along, all the sermons that you've heard in the past and the points that they've, that they've made. I listened to probably five or six different sermons. Uh, Kevin DeYoung, uh, uh, Eric Alexander, uh, uh, John Piper, uh, uh, See, they seem like, oh, Mark Dever, all, all of these men speaking on this particular chapter. The amazing thing was how they approached it so differently. But they still came up with the same thing, theme that we'll hit later, Lord willing. He knew, <clears throat> uh, he knew her need for the gift of God, which is living water. What is this living water? Eric Alexander summarized it saying, it's eternal life. Uh, but it's more specifically, it is a source of life, which is the Holy Spirit, who produces that internal life by applying the finished work of Christ on the cross. He knew her lifestyle <clears throat> reflected and pictured this need. Perhaps by contrast to their lifestyles, they were selected to represent all of us in our common need to fulfill the purpose for which we were created not only to fulfill that purpose, but to enable us in that eternal occupation. This is just the beginning. This is, as the hymn says, a foretaste of glory divine. That what we're doing here to morning, being called this morning by God to worship Him, will be our occupation through all eternity. So let's pick up in the story again. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had, in the ESD, he had to pass through Samaria. Now, many have suggested there is nothing special in this verse. If you look at a map, the most direct route to Galilee was through Samaria. <clears throat> so Jesus just chose to take the shortest route. But there are others who point out the fact that most Jews, religious Jews, would bypass and take a more easternly route uh, to circumnavigate Samaria. They wanted to maintain their purity and stay away from people that they thought were less than themselves. Here, the King James, I think, says he needs to go through. And I looked up the word, and it, 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 he needs, he ought. There's a compulsion to it. There's a, uh, it's not just that he, this was the shortest route, if you understand what I'm saying. Believe it or not, we have been drawn here this morning by the God of eternal purposes. It's not random choice but by God's direct invitation and His drawing us together, we are here this morning for His eternal purposes. So we continue. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. 
Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. He was omniscient, but he was also human. He grew tired and weary. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. <clears throat> the Samaritan woman said to him, and this is her first of many questions, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask for me, drink, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew, and this is where we've spent some time, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living waters. This is a text we focused on last time. We emphasize the gift of God and who it was that was speaking to her. Give me a drink. And we say again this morning, the statement still holds true. If we recognize, if we today consider who it is that is offering and what he is offering us this morning, we will ask, we will plead, we'll beg for him to give to us living water. What is this living water? In chapter 7 of the last day of the Feast of Booths, Jesus said, <clears throat> Jesus said to the crowds that morning, he says, if anyone thirsts, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. That's exactly what he is saying to her. You had asked me of something to drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living waters. What in the world does that mean? Have you, did I give you the text? It's in John chapter, four, chapter 7. Anyhow. <clears throat> what does that mean? Jesus gives us the answer, or John gives us the answer. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. And then he goes on to explain, for yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now Jesus has been glorified. Now, today, Jesus has been glorified, and we who have believed in him have received His Holy Spirit. And I might suggest to you that we received Him because of the work of the Holy Spirit. So this woman, much like Nicodemus, living in the temporal world, seeing through physical eyes, she said, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank for it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Well, Jesus could have given her the short answer, and he says, yes, I am greater than Jacob, your father. But he would demonstrate it to her in his own time. Continuing in verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Of course, we know that he's talking about the Holy Spirit. He's speaking in spiritual terms while she's thinking in physical terms. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You see the parallel that we have later in John. Jesus continues to prepare the ground by introducing the work of the Spirit, which she and Nicodemus might and I might add as well as all of us need. 
something neither he nor she could do for themselves. The need of all humanity is to be born again by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. And he said to her, if you knew the gift of God. The woman continues. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty and have to come here to draw water. I don't know how far she lived, but most of the jars were not plastic. They were made of terracotta and the jar themselves were heavy. You fill it with water. It was a, it was a hard task and she, it had to be done daily, if not more than once a day. Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, the words of Jesus and Nicodemus and to the Samaritan woman will always, were always seen through physical eyes. Nicodemus asking, how can this be? How can I enter a second time into my mother's womb? The woman says, how can this be? You don't have a jug to draw from. Are you greater than our father? So also no one comprehends the thoughts Paul tells us in Corinthians so no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. That's why I say, which comes first, the new birth or the Holy Spirit? It's the Holy Spirit that enables us to receive and gives to us and creates within us life from above. Well, Jesus said to her, <clears throat> go call your husband. Everybody loves this part of the story. I see smiles already. We can see the irony in it, the, the dilemma. Uh, we can almost picture the expression on her face as the stranger speaks to her. She's already seen that he, this is a Jew speaking and then he's talking as if he's greater than the... All of this is, is real drama. Uh, uh, and I'm sure that somewhere they put it in a, in a movie. But the words here says, The woman answered him said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you, are, you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. And I say, this is a cohesion. It goes back. He did not need him to tell who, what was in man, for he himself knew what was in, man, in mankind for certain, but also within the individual heart. So many times there would be those who were thinking in their minds and Jesus would say and, and shock them with the, his ability to tell them what they were thinking. Well, how do you respond to something like this? Someone is tell, tells you you've never met before, no reason to believe that they've talked to anybody within the town, and he tells you everything. He, he lays your life out in front of you. This is the work, and I say, it's the, it's the culturing, the, the nurturing the, of the seed that is being planted. He's tilling the soil here. And what he's really doing is he's bringing and pointing to a need greater than the need for water. She's a sinner. And we're going to see that that, or we know that our sin prohibits us from worshiping God. So she says, I perceive that you are a prophet. Sometimes the word of God comes to a person and it seems that they respond instantly. But we cannot see how God has been preparing them from the time of their encounter with the word of God in some previous conversation. In her case, she was a religious person or she was from a religious community. She had a history 
of religiosity. One time in her city, there was a temple <clears throat> to God. It is obvious that she understood from her religious past something about the prophets, and so she continues. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, for those of us who met in Sunday school, we'll be going through from dust to glory, and today it was on the dividing of the, dividing of the nation, where Rehoboam oppressed the people, and Jeroboam and Israel split from the southern nation. And they formed, and he, uh, Sproul mentioned uh, Omri and Ahab, and the northern kingdom seat was in Shechem, in Samaria, where Mount Gerizim is. And so they built a temple to God there. So she's pointing out the differences, and a lot of times people that you're talking to about uh, their, their need they start getting really religious and they've got all of these difficult questions to ask you. And this is a difficult question, or at least she thinks it is, here or there. Of course, in our Sunday school class, we were reminded that God had chosen to set his name in Jerusalem. That's where the temple was. On Wednesday night, we well, I think I'm going to get there later, so I'll hold off on that. Sometimes... <clears throat> As he pointed out time and time again, she lies her idea of worship in both tradition of the fathers and their denominations today that are always pointing to the traditions of the fathers. What is this question? Was this question a diversion or was she genuinely dealing with a religious conundrum? It matters little because she is standing before the one whom every knee will bow. He has come to draw one that the Father has given him. So Jesus continues in verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such. <clears throat> for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must, must worship Him in spirit and truth. As we read this, it's easy to suggest to you <clears throat> that Jesus is saying that the essence of true worship is not governed by this place or that place. That's exactly what he's saying. But why? We know that we've just mentioned that the place of worship was very specific, very particular to Jerusalem. It began with the divisions, as we've mentioned, of Judah and Israel. And the Samaritans' rejection of part of the word, all of the word of God except for the first five books. So they rejected the Davidic kingdom in their split, and they rejected all, rejected all that the worship prescribed by God in it. <clears throat> Jesus returns to this term, hour, if you remember from, from chapter 2, when he turned the water into wine, he told his mother, my hour has not yet come. Time and time again, he'll say, my hour has not yet come. There is the hour, the hour of his death, but his hour has, he has come in this hour into the world. And he is presenting himself to her in this words. 
He's told her that his hour is coming in verse 21, and then he repeats with an addition, and is now here. In the context of where Jesus points to the new temple, I say, he, I say new because in chapter 3, when the Jews asked for a sign, what did he tell them? He says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. And they say, are you greater, basically, are you greater than Solomon? But we know he was speaking about his body. The, the Jews had to go to the temple. And I think I'm right in saying this. In this story, the temple has come to this woman. Jesus in his body is gathering a people and we form in his body corporately the temple of God where he meets with his people. Of course, <clears throat> the temple is where the Jew met with God to offer their worship to him. Now the spirit of God is in our midst this morning and in our hearts uniting us corporately and individually to Jesus, the temple which is his body. We are members one another as the body of Christ. We are seated in him this morning in heavenlies. In Christ Jesus, we are seated in the heavenlies before God, which is now, that which is now, and yet there is a promise of more to come. In Revelation 21, 22, and 23, we read, I saw no temple. I saw no temple, for its temple is the Lord the Almighty, and the Lamb. And this is the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world, standing before her. And the city had no need of a sun nor a moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the lamp is the Lamb. I obviously the connection between the Father and the Son in all of this. <clears throat> but you might push back and accurately point out that the text says the hour is coming, and now is here, when true worshipers... Not the temple is here, but true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. I have been told, I haven't looked it up, but this is the only place in the Scriptures where it says that God is seeking something. I think our text title comes from this. Uh, our sermon title is, The Son of Man Came to Seek and to Save the Lost. Why? Because the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. But what does that mean, and what conclusions can we draw? Note in verse 23, Jesus speaks of true worshipers, which denotes or suggests the possibility that there are those who are not true worshipers. In another place, he will speak concerning worship. You praise me with your lips, quoting from the Old Testament. You praise me from your lips, but your heart is far from me. So what is essential to true worship? Wednesday night, we've been studying the book of Leviticus the last couple of months. It has been pointed out that Leviticus is the heart in the middle, is the heart of the first <coughs> five books of the Bible. And also at the heart of Leviticus is the idea of worship. Last Wednesday night, Kurt drew on the whiteboard, OT over here and NT over here. And then he asked the question, what connects these two? What are, what are things that have passed away and what are things that have continued? On the surface, one, 
seem to characterize the Old Testament with the word particular. I think that's the word we use. Very particular, very concise. Chapter after chapter, verse after verse, you have these detailed prescribed things that were supposed to be done for the people of God to approach for the high priest. Very limited, very particular. I think that we observed is that the manner in which man approached God in worship is not willy-nilly or left up to the devices of man. The idea of worship is not so vast and all comprehensive, but in the scriptures it's very specific and exact. But a look at our text this morning points to the specificity, that specificity. God is seeking a specific kind of people who will worship Him in a specific way. God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and truth. Many believe that the spirit here re refers to our emotions, like enthusiasm, like we have team spirit. In other words, we are very enthusiastic in our worship. And others believe that truth, a separate word, talks about our sincerity. We really mean it. We're really sincere in our enthusiastic worship. And I'm not against enthusiasm. <laughs> and I'm not against excitement. And I believe in sincerity and honesty. And that refers to verse, you worship me with your lips, but your heart is not with me. But in keeping with the flow of John <clears throat> where, and where we have been, we're going to see that there's a connection between the Spirit and truth. You cannot separate truth from the Spirit. You cannot separate the truth from the Son of God. You cannot separate the truth from the Father. The God who is Spirit is also all truth. The text says that God is Spirit, and we read, For He whom God has sent utters the words of God, for He gives the Spirit without measure. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ in chapter 3, we read that, that God has given to His Son the Spirit without measure. In Isaiah 61, we read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to the blind to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and to open the prisons of those who are bound. And of course, we can, we can speak metaphorically of all of these and apply them to ourselves. This is the one who has come, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has been anointed by the Holy Spirit of God. If you want, just flip over a few pages to John chapter 14, and you'll read, these words, 16 and 17. I will ask that, this is Jesus speaking to His disciples at His near departure. I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth. Whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him for He dwells with you and will be in you. Chapter 20, he breathes on them and he says, receive my spirit. All of us who have put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He is in our midst and has bound us to Christ and to each other in his body. The Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth. So if we worship this morning, it must be by the aid and the enablement of the spirit and in the spirit of truth. 
When, when the helper comes, this is John 15, 26, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. That's the primary work of the Holy Spirit is to bear witness to the Son. And we have been caused to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. In these last days, God has spoken to us through His Son, and the Holy Spirit is in our midst that He might speak to us about that Son. Then finally in John 16, 12, 16, 12 through 15, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth, there it is again, comes, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is Mine. Therefore I said that He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. Just some takeaways briefly. And I'll stop in the time. Don't get panicky on me here. Some takeaways. A list, a partial list from Mark Dever. God cares about how he's worshipped. The Old Testament, I don't have time to develop that, but God cares about how he's worshipped. If God cares about how he's worshipped, we'll go back to Chuck's sermon where we're to identify with Jesus. and We should care about how we worship and not take for granted that everything that we do is in spirit and in truth. Worship is fundamentally Number two, worship is fundamentally about God. Let me give to a pastor's thoughts on this. John Piper during a sermon says, This is a worship service and not a public lecture. The act of worship is not mainly the transfer of information. The act of worship is mainly the exaltation of our hearts over the greatness and beauty and worth of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our God. That's why it says we can enjoy Him forever. If we don't see His beauty and His wonder and His majesty, if our attention is never drawn to Him, the author and finisher of our faith, then what is there to enjoy except ourselves and what we do? <clears throat> he continues, Worship is happening when we treasure the greatness, the beauty, that worth, and say it and sing it and pray it and listen for it and plead for it. The sermon in corporate worship is not after worship or before worship, it should be worship. If the preacher is not moved by the reality, get this, if he's not moved by the reality, he explains, if he's not exulting over the truth of his exposition, he's not preaching. I've told you, I love R.C. Sproul because he exults in his teaching. It's real to him and it's contagious. The preacher must set forth biblical truth in such a way that Christ is seen more clearly and loved more dearly, and he does it by seeing truly and loving duly. Sinclair Ferguson in the Reformation Bible writes this on his article, his contribution on the article of worship. He is worshiped at one. He's talking about God, the Trinity, the triune God. He is yet in the light of appropriation of the specific activities to one particular divine person, each person <clears throat> is appropriately to be worshipped, praised, and adored 
in that respect. The Father for sending the Son and adopting us as children. The Son for His obedience and sacrifice. The Spirit for applying redemption. He continues, true worship therefore has its focus not on worship as such, but on the triune Lord Himself. It is evoked in us by His self-revealing. It's possible only through Him and is directed toward Him. God the Trinity is sin qua non, without which there is no worship. Without God, there is no worship, without or engagement. D.A. Carson, another pastor, theologian, adds this, you can't find excellent corporate worship until you stop trying to find excellent corporate worship and find God Himself. Worship is hearing and responding to God is presented in His Word. It involves hearing, understanding, considering, and responding in faith and obedience. Faith, worship involves a whole life. Whether we eat or drink or whatsoever we do, we do it as unto the Lord. And yet, that is not to be applied to corporate worship. There are things that we can do in our private daily lives that we don't do in church, hopefully. We sleep. We recreate. We do lots of things. And we can do it to the glory of God. But we're very specific. We follow what we call the regulative principle which is the reading of God's Word, the preaching of God's Word, the singing of God's Word, <clears throat> the praying of God's Word, and then the involvement with the sacraments. So Jesus' disciples came back and they marveled that He was talking to a woman and they, and they asked, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her jar and went away to the city briefly. May I suggest to you that the record of her leaving the water jar is not incidental, but important? Her whole purpose for coming was to draw water. And she would draw water for the rest of her life. But it is a metaphor of her life. It speaks of the emptiness. She's like the cisterns that the Jews dug, leaky cisterns that couldn't hold water when they could have that fountain flowing within. That's the promise of God this morning. Uh, so we, if we don't sense it, we don't know it, we plead for it, we pray for it. God, this is your promise that you will give us water to drink. Give us this Spirit. We are indwelt by the Spirit. Now take and empower us through the Spirit that He might illumine us, that He might lead us, that He might guide us, that He might direct us in worship. Finishing up. Now, <clears throat> so she went back to her people. and She says, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. And she asked the question, can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. I'm not sure if she was, <clears throat> what she, I'm not sure if what she said in these words was a question as much as it was an affirmation. Come and see, come and see. This man has told me everything. Could this be the, and I think already the Holy Spirit had begun to work in her life and, and, and she believed. <clears throat> Many And I'm going to skip the section about uh, one section here, except for the Jesus says that there are those who plant the fields or white into harvest. There are those who plant and those that are reap. But we'll pick up in verse 30. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. 
So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more, many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. She became that day not only a true worshiper, but a true sower. She believed because of her testimony, while others, through hearing Jesus and considered his proclamation, responded in belief. Our gracious God and Father, we pray and we do ask this morning that we might be worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. All of our studies on Wednesday night and even what we've been studying about the divided kingdom and the temple building and Solomon and David and your many promises, Lord, show us that you are faithful and true. And the Lord Jesus Christ came that day to that Samaritan woman, came to Nicodemus, and we believe later he came to faith in you. We pray now that, Father, that uh, you would speak to us and guide us and lead us and direct us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.